On this episode of a New York Minute in History... If you're driving into the town and you get into the town and you roll down your windows, you literally hear the music. The reason it was so popular was because it reminded a lot of people of Puerto Rico. We kick back, relax, and learn how the Catskill Mountains became home to Las Villas, a collection of Hispanic and Latino resorts that sprung up in the 20th century. It's all up next, right after this. From the Irish invasion of Canada to the early days of the movies. If you are interested in broadening your understanding of New York State history, then this is the podcast for you. I'm Susan Hughes, historian and archivist for the William G. Pomeroy Foundation, a proud sponsor of a New York Minute in History. The Pomeroy Foundation is a philanthropic organization based in Syracuse, New York. One of our main initiatives is to help people celebrate their community's history by providing grants for historic markers and plaques. Here in the Empire State and across the country, we support a diverse range of marker programs that include commemorating food history, civil rights, folklore, and sites on the National Register of Historic Places. As the nation's leading funder of historic markers, the Pomeroy Foundation has awarded over 1,800 grants since 2005. To learn more about the Foundation's grant programs, visit WGPFoundation.org. That's WGPFoundation.org. Welcome to a New York Minute in History. I'm Devin Lander, the New York State Historian. And I'm Lauren Roberts, the historian for Saratoga County. On this episode, we'll be talking about a marker located in the town of Platykill in Ulster County. Located in the Catskills region of the state, this marker sits at the intersection of Huckleberry Turnpike and County Road 13, which is also known as Platykill Ardonia Road, and the text reads, Las Villas, name given Platykill and Catskills resorts offering Latin music, food, and culture from circa 1914. This road, gateway to their locations, William G. Pomeroy Foundation, 2020. So before we started working on this episode, I had never heard of Las Vias before. Uh, I wasn't aware that there was an area of the Catskills that catered to Latino and Hispanic people. So I spoke with Ish Martinez, who grew up at Las Vias, and he helped us to understand what Las Vias actually means. My name is Ismael Martinez, Jr. I actually grew up in one of the vias that my parents owned. So that's what gives me most of the background about Las Villas. Uh, aside from that, I've done a lot of research once I decided that I was going to write a book about Las Villas. I felt it was something that was important. I felt it was uh, an interesting and an important era for our town and for Latinos uh, in general. Via itself is a, a kind of a polysemous word. It has many meanings. It can mean country house. It can mean country estate. It can even mean small village. Um, but in, in the context of the Villas, it was more or less a country house. As you may know, the Catskills and the Hudson Valley has always been an area of retreats and resorts and people going out into 
see the scenery and get the fresh air. And at the time, farms were coming up for sale. It wasn't very far from New York City. And so Plattic Hill just happened to be the place. It was kind of random to spend time in the country in these country houses. Las Vias was a new topic to me as well. I had no idea that this group of resorts existed in, in the Catskills and existed for as many decades as they did. The marker references 1914, but there's some evidence that some of the early vias began as early as 1912. And these were established first by Spanish people who were residing in New York City, and they were looking for a place to kind of get out of the city, especially in the summertime. It gets a little uh, oppressive down there, and they were looking for somewhere in the countryside where they could meet as a group and go as families and, and friends. That's really the genesis for this. And then it exploded by the 1930s and 40s, and especially the 1950s, as more and more people gained access to transportation, cars, even buses were used to bus people from the city up to Ulster County. By the hundreds, Las Vias really took off and they eventually numbered over 50. When I spoke with Ish Martinez, he talked about how his parents got started in the Las Vias community. My mother was born in Brooklyn to Puerto Rican parents, and then she moved to a place called El Barrio, and some people might be familiar with that. It's uh, Spanish Harlem. It's uh, between 90th Street and 116th Street in general on the east side of Manhattan. And it had a very large Hispanic community, mostly Puerto Ricans. There were some Spanish, there were Cubans, and then later on, uh, Dominicans and South Americans. So my parents met in El Barrio, and that's where they grew up through their teen years and their younger years. They had discovered the Villas early on in the 40s, and they were actually customers to Las Villas. And they used to come up to Platicil to a place called uh, Villa Rodriguez. And Villa Rodriguez was the first villa, as far as my research tells me, that was established in Platicil. So around the 20s, my parents started coming up there in the 40s and they enjoyed it so much. They loved the area. And at some point, my dad just decided that they wanted to move to Platicil and they bought a farm. They started out as farmers that lasted only a year or two. There were chickens and some cows and pigs. Um, but with all the vias already established in the area, they saw that as a better alternative for them. And they quickly um, turned it into a via. My dad, having had a carpentry background, built most of the vias aside from the, the original farmhouse that they had. And that's when he built rooms, dining halls, and dance halls, and the bar. And so did you continue to live in the farmhouse part of it? We did at first. Uh, they bought the, the business in 1948. By 1955, we had moved full-time to Platic Hill. Um, before that, we would come up on weekends and whenever we could. My dad was still working in New York City. Um, but then finally, when we moved up, he built a house for us to live in. So we built our own house. My father's sister 
and her husband also moved up and built a house. So we had, we did have our own home, and then the the villa had the buildings that had accommodated all the rest. The name of the villa was Sunny Acres Hotel. It was funny because the name was, I guess, invented by my father's sister, my aunt Stella. And um, and she had seen the name in the funny papers and somewhere she saw a farm called Sunny Acres. And so she, she brought that to his attention. They liked the name and the name stuck. And even though it doesn't have a Latino ring to it, <laughs> you know, you get a lot of variations on, on what people called it based on whether they have an accent or don't have a Spanish <laughs> accent. But yeah, that's, that's the name of it. And, um, you know, it went on for uh, about 22 years. They ran it. It was around for a while. As a, a child of villa owners, naturally you were expected to work, do your share in taking care of the villa. So my jobs were numerous. I took care of the swimming pool. I mowed the grass. I trimmed the, the hedges. I cleaned inside and out. And I'm not just talking about me, but our entire family. I have two older brothers, Ron and Larry. I have a, a younger sister, Carla. We were a, a true villa family. We all had our part. We all did some work to some extent. My mother certainly worked in the kitchens, took reservations. My dad was kind of like the host with the most. He just had to show up. And uh, it seemed like everyone in town knew him. I couldn't tell you how many people from the city would ask for him by name. I have to imagine that most of the people coming out of the city didn't have their own automobiles because most people in the city don't. So how were people getting to Las Vegas? That is true. Early on in the 20s and the 30s, the best form of transportation for many people was actually by boat. And they would take boats, sometimes day liners. They would go to the port of Newburgh and Kingston. And from there, they could catch either a bus or uh, in the case of Kingston, it was a rail line that went out along the Route 28 corridor where a number of these uh, vias also existed. Uh, in Newburgh, there was bus transportation to Platykill and to other areas that would bring them to the vias. Of course, over time, as the highways got better and roads got better, and people were able to afford cars, then bus and cars were the main forms of transportation. The buses in particular, in Spanish they were called giras. Giras uh, is spelled J-I-R-A-S, giras. And basically what that was, was it was people chartering buses to get them to the vias. And they would come up pretty much in droves. I mean, you could get a bus ticket for between four and six dollars. At one point, you would see the roads back to back with traffic. I mean, bumper to bumper. You would have cars and buses and small town like Platykill almost couldn't take as much transportation as it was getting. So it could be problematic also, but see, people seem to tolerate it. Was it more common to go out for the day, like a day trip? Did it vary? Yes, it did. It did vary by uh, family. As I mentioned, the, the ones that brought up the hitas, the buses, those were generally just daytime visitors. But there were people that had their own cars and they would come up and they might stay for a day or they might stay for the weekend. 
which was when most of the activity was going on in terms of music and so forth. My parents had many visitors who would come up and stay for a week. And so did some of the other villas that were a little bit larger, like the Villa Nueva, the Villa Garcia, the Villa Galicia. And there were uh, several others, the Villa Madrid, the Villa Victoria. So those were places that had week-long visitors. And generally, it would be things for them to do. There would be swimming pools, playgrounds, and basketball courts. In some villas, like in my parents' villa, um, I should mention that their names were Ismael and Lucy Martinez. My dad went by the name of Shorty, though, for obvious reasons, <laughs> if you knew him. Um, he was pretty innovative. My dad, he had a lot of ideas about bringing people in. He made sure that there was always some form of, of entertainment going on to keep the people at the VIA when they got there. Because a lot of people would do the villa hopping. Somebody came, they heard a band. When the break came, they would scurry over to another VIA where maybe the music was still going on. And of course, there were places to eat. My parents had a restaurant as well. But he believed that if you kept the people there, they would tend to spend more. And so you would have day and night entertainment. And it would start in the afternoon and go all the way on Saturday night. It would go until 2 a.m. Uh, with the bands playing until the law required that the bar had to close down. Was this one of the premier places where Latinos could kind of celebrate their culture, where there might not have been that available to them in the city? Was it kind of a, a cultural experience as well as a vacation for them? Yes, it, it absolutely was. It was a place where they could congregate and get together and, you know, share their culture, the language naturally. As I mentioned, most of them came out of the city and the, and the New York metropolitan area. So we had people coming from Connecticut, people coming from New Jersey. You had people that were had a, a great allegiance to one Villa, and they got to actually know the owners and even the employees that the Villas uh, employed. And it kind of became like a family to them. And there were other people who might test out the waters and try one Villa one year and one Villa uh, the next. But yeah, you had many loyal uh, customers who would come to the same Villa. There was a lot of variety in the vias as well. Some of them were very small, one-room, more club-like atmosphere. And then other vias were much bigger and were more resort-like. You could rent a room there. They had pools. There were playgrounds for the kids. Some of them had more of a family atmosphere rather than just the nightlife. In general, families seemed to all come out of the city together and, and enjoy this, whether that was a day trip. He mentioned that churches would often charter buses so that the church community would go for the day and have a trip and listen to the music and have the food and then head back to the city. But also there were some people that would go away for the week. So it really varied. And they were all pretty much seasonal. They would start in May. They would close in early fall. I think it's interesting, too, that we see, as I noted earlier, that the original vias were created by Spanish people, uh, people from Spanish descent. And then as kind of immigration patterns change in New York City and there's an influx 
of Cuban people or Cuban Americans in New York City, they start to come to Las Vegas, in some cases purchasing their own uh, resorts and, and taking that over. And then in the decades since the 1940s, 1950s, and into the 60s, 70s, it starts to be predominantly Puerto Rican immigrants and people of Puerto Rican descent who are spending time in Las Vegas. And I think this is a really interesting and indicative of the immigration patterns, again, in New York City and in New York State itself. It's also very interesting to think that Platykill is a very small town and not necessarily a diverse town either. But because of people establishing businesses and then hundreds and thousands flocking to those businesses every summer, it really becomes a very diverse place and a very economically successful place, at least during the summertime. And they were all along kind of one road because all of these people that were coming up on buses didn't have transportation once they got there. So a lot of the vias had to be within walking distance. He said they called it via hopping, Mm. where they could go from via to via. And he talks about how his father was clever about keeping people at his via because he would have one band play a set. And then when they took a break... Another band would pick up their break so that nobody was leaving in between because he said everybody was dancing. He wanted to have everybody dancing all the time. That's a great point. I mean, one of the most interesting and I think historically significant parts of the story is the fact that Las Vias became really an epicenter for Latino and specifically salsa music. There were so many prominent musicians that uh, either got their start there or at least spent time playing there. And you noted it was because Villas were trying to keep as many people there as they could. So they were doing it by trying to attract the best bands, having more bands, also having the best food and cuisine, because that was a huge part of it. I think, you know, I visualize this as a town-wide Latino festival, right? It's music, it's open grills and people dancing and drinking and going from uh, site to site and and really uh, trying to take it all in during the amount of time that they have there. As you noted, some people didn't have more than maybe one night there and other people stayed longer. Uh, So really to get an idea about the importance of Las Vias for the musicians who were working in New York City and trying to establish a name for themselves, I spoke with Jimmy Castro, who is a music producer and promoter, and also a filmmaker who made a film called Back to Las Vias. You didn't think about it that much back then, but when I think about it now, it was just so incredible. It was a a unique place, you know, a place that was just second to none. There was nowhere else like it. You know, there's legendary artists today that you name them, and they actually started their careers playing in La Villas. You know, people like Larry Harlow, uh, Yomo Toro, Hector Lavoe, they weren't known back then. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And And a lot of them, a lot of Latin music legends that, you know, were based in New York at that time, would take the trip always just to get out of the city. I mean, they played a lot in New York City, of course, but, mm-hmm. you know, just to get out of the city every now and then, they would travel up to La Villas and perform. It seemed to have played a major role not only as a, a venue, but as a, a way to get the music out into a, even larger audiences. 
Yeah, that was the that was the thing. A lot of it was word of mouth also, you know. Um, these artists coming from New York City, driving up on weekends to perform, again, weren't as well known as they are now. Some of them aren't even with us anymore. Mm. It was word of mouth, too. People that visited La Villas and, and, and were able to see these artists perform got to know them, became fans. The fan base, of course, grew from them performing in La Villas because a lot of the people that went to La Villas actually a majority of them are from New York City. They're also driving up. If you're driving into the town and you get into the town and you roll down your windows, you literally hear the music before you even get to any of it. So it was, you know, people people say it reminded a lot of the reason it was so popular was because it reminded a lot of people of Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. You know, their home, where they came from. And going to La Villas was like, you know, they even called it Little Puerto Rico. Mm. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that I remember about it. And then when the, during the production, I wanted, I reached out to a lot of people asking if they had pictures, video, anything like that to send me. And I, and I got so much stuff, a lot of stuff mm. I couldn't even use. Wow. Because it was so much. Mm. Everybody sending me from all over the world, mm -hmm. I'm telling you, mm -hmm. <laughs> from, from all over the world, I was getting pictures and stories and I couldn't keep up with it I mean I I had a really small production team but you know it's producing a documentary again producing a film it, it's it's really a lot of work man before I started working on the production itself I needed to find a narrator for it you know yep. of course documentary you have to have, have a narrator and I, w I didn't know who I would get you know I, mm -hmm. I was trying to think of who could I reach out to to narrate this and one night I was actually in my in my home watching the news Fox News 5 from New York mm -hmm. and uh, one of the meteorologists her name is Audrey Puente mm -hmm. she's actually the daughter of the famous Tito Puente the Timbales player right I was listening to her, you know, doing the weather, <laughs> and I said, man, wouldn't it be great to have her, you know, because her father performed there. Sure. And I sent her a message, and I was so surprised that she really got back to me right away. Wow. I called her. I explained what I was doing. She didn't hesitate. She said, I'm in, Jimmy. Count me in. So that's how she became, you know, the narrator of this documentary. What is considered to be the golden era when Las Villas was the most popular would be between the 1950s through the 1970s. And once you get into the 1980s and certainly into the early 90s, um, it really drops off and there are less and less villas and less people are visiting, largely because it's much easier and more affordable to be able to travel by airplane. And there are other places that now are centers of Latin culture, such as Florida, where people are, are frequently visiting that area rather than Platykill. Travel patterns change. 
being from Saratoga Springs, like yeah. after the Victorian era, when everybody started to get their own automobiles, they didn't have to take the train anymore. Yeah. You know, Broadway was on a downward spiral for a while. So the same is true here. Many of the people who live in Platakill now or in the area may drive by the area that was known as Las Vias and not even know what used to be there. And because of this, Ish thought it was important to mark with a historic marker the location and to remember what had been such a huge part of that community. I would be remiss if I didn't say that this all got kicked off by my sister, Carla Ramos, who started a Facebook page called Las Vias of Platicill. And that really brought to mind that it was the right time to write the book and to start giving Las Vias more exposure. Aside from my book, there weren't anything obvious in the town to tell people that the Vias uh, once existed there. As I say, I, I was always interested in these markers and would always stop to read them. And I thought just to myself, you know, that would be a good way to bring the story of Las Vias at least to the attention of people driving through the village or living in the village. There's a place in the village where um, there existed a general store. And that was kind of the center of the village. It was the crossroads, really, of people coming through the village and either continuing up Route 32 to Northern Ulster County or taking the Platakill Ardonia Road, where many of these villas actually were established. It was like our malt shop when we were growing up. And back when the villas were around, there was an organization that was formed by the villa owners called the Platakill Tavern Owners Association. And as part of that association, they created one large sign with all the names of the villas and businesses on it. And that sign was located right there near the, near the general store. And I just felt that that crossroad there would be a good spot to put the sign. Have you had more people asking about the history or? I've received a lot of positive feedback from the locals in the town, both Latinos and non-Latinos, about the sign and how um, there's a certain amount of pride for them having that there. Because as it turns out, that sign, and it's amazing to me, that it's the only historical sign in the town of Platicill. Yeah, I think it has given you know some exposure and, and some uh, feedback on the history of Las Villas. I'm, I'm glad it's it's there. I think of the environment that I grew up in, and I think about uh, Via Sunny Acres in its totality, just what it looked like. And, you know, that will forever be preserved in my memory, even though today, if you were to go back there, it looks much, much different. The dining room dance hall and the bar, that building burned down in 2006. But when I think back about it, I always think about the property in its entirety and and all the things I did there as, as a child. I think of the swimming pool and I think of the pond, which had rowboats. I think about um, the dance hall and how, you know, how much time I spent there. Actually, as I think about it, 
when you're in it, you think it will never end. It, I mean, you see thousands of people flocking to the villas in buses and in cars. Everything was crowded and there was so much going on. You just feel like it will never end. But, you know, things come to an end and, and, uh, and that's just life, I guess. Thanks for listening to A New York Minute in History. This podcast is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio, the New York State Museum, and Archivist Media, with support from the William G. Pomeroy Foundation. Our producer is Jesse King. A big thanks to Ish Martinez and Jimmy Castro for taking part in this month's episode. In 2016, Ish Martinez published a book called Las Vias of Platakil in Ulster County. To learn more about our guests and the show, check us out at wamcpodcast.org. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at NYHistoryMinute. I'm Devin Lander. And I'm Lauren Roberts. Until next time, Excelsior! Excelsior.